in Acts 2 in the near future. At this time, during this special, unique historical interval, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, that means the brethren and the sistren, that's Ashley as much as Ken, men as much as women, we know there are women there. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and he said, brethren, fellow believers, male and female, the scripture from the Old Testament, right, Sean, had to be fulfilled was the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth and the pen of David concerning Judas, Judas Iscariot, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted amongst us and received his share in this special, unique apostolic ministry. Then Luke gives you a parenthesis for two verses to tell you some stuff he wants to make sure you know as he writes the book of Acts. He says, now this man, that is Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his intestines gushed out. This would be rated R, right? And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem at the time so that in their own language, the field was called Hakakanama. That is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and he's going to cite two distinct Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Therefore, in the parentheses, he's quoted the scripture he referred to, Peter goes on, therefore it is necessary that of the men who've accompanied us, the apostles and the larger group of believers that were in and out of the ministry of Jesus, therefore it's necessary that of all the men that have accompanied us all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning at the very beginning with the baptism of John the Baptist, until the day Jesus was taken up the ascension from us, one of these who knew Jesus and saw him in his ministry and after his death and his resurrection must become an, an apostolic witness, a special, unique 12th apostle, a special witness with us, the other 11 of his resurrection. So they put forward the two men that qualified based on those requirements. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. He must have been really important. He had three different names. I'm Brad, also known as the Flash. So I only have one name. So I have one nickname. So I have two names. Yeah. Nobody's ever called me the Flash, but it's going to be funny. So we've got this first guy, Joseph, but his two other names, and also the second guy, Matthias. And they prayed, all 120, and said, Lord you picked the 12 initially. We want you to pick the 12th guy to replace Judas here. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this unique apostolic ministry, this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own way. And they drew lots. Okay, Myrna, you see that? It's in the Bible. Today we'd flip a coin. They flipped the coin to figure out if it was going to be Joseph or Matthias, and the lot fell to Matthias. It, it came up heads, and they had chosen heads from Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. In the vast majority of cases, most of the time, true spirituality isn't very impressive to the human eye. And that's exactly because true spirituality is about reality, not ritual, but it's about a special kind of reality. It's about an invisible but real spiritual dynamic where believers like Ashley Buchanan, uh, like Ron Miller, are responding from the heart, from the inside out to the one who saved them. So they do a lot of good things for all the right reasons, even when nobody's looking. And they often do things that aren't impressive to the human eyeball because there's not a lot of fanfare. There's not necessarily a big crowd. There aren't a lot of fancy rituals. And I think we see that kind of thing here in our passage here. All they're doing here is praying and flipping a coin. But these guys and gals are right exactly where God wants them to be. This morning, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see the 11 apostles making a very important decision at a very strategic moment of salvation history, a 
apart from rituals, apart from waiting for voices, apart from anything beyond seeking God's will by Scripture, prayer, and common sense. And let me submit to you, 99% of the time, that's the way it works. Scripture, prayer, and common sense. We don't know all God's doing around us, but he's going to let us know what he wants us to be doing around us, right? And that's what you do. Let me suggest to you that what we just read here wouldn't be very impressive to most self-appointed spiritual fruit inspectors. But the only spiritual fruit inspector that counts is our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm calling this surprising spirituality. Private prayer, nobody knows about this except the 120, followed by flipping a coin to pick a 12th apostle. you got to be kidding. Could God be in that? I believe he was. Uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word. Uh, let's pray um, for those who protect and service. And uh, he's trying to hide back there behind Emma, but Steve, you can run, but you can't hide, brother, okay? So I'm going to ask you if you would uh, pray for our teachability and also for troops, peace officers, and firefighters, okay? Thank you, my man. Well, you know what? Uh, since a week ago, Friday, Debbie and I have been totally disoriented. We're not totally responsible for anything we've done in the last 10 days. But because of, of freak weather events, uh, as you probably know, I don't think we had church here last Sunday. I wasn't here. Uh, I would have tried to come if I knew you were going to be here. But, uh, yeah, and then Wednesday hit us. And so we're, we're very disorganized. And so I thought I'd try to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking by doing some stuff about snow and ice briefly. And so uh, I found some, uh, by the way, we're going to do the Lord's Supper right after second hour, right after a short fellowship break after teaching time. So that's, that's really important. But uh, to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, which, I mean, Clay, you know this is critical, right? Uh, I want to share five knock-knock jokes, okay? Now, does everybody know how this works? I'm going to say knock, knock, and you're going to say, and I'm going to say snow, and you're going to say, okay, we're good. Before the knock, knock jokes, we got two uh, snowmen talking to one another. Don't be absurd. Nobody made us. We evolved by chance from snowflakes. Okay, top five knock, knock jokes about snow and ice that only truly spiritual believers laugh at. Knock, knock. Snow. Snow school today, there's too much ice. Knock, knock. Freeze. Freeze a jolly good fellow for freeze a jolly good fellow. Knock, knock. I see. I see a big polar bear right ahead. Knock, knock. Alaska. I'll ask my mom if I can come out and play in the snow. And finally, hold your applause. Knock, knock. Kin. And it's spelled K-Y-N-N. Okay. Let's do it again. Knock, knock. Kin. Can I stay home today from school? It's too cold to go outside. Okay. Thank you for putting up with that. Let's talk about the, the broad context and the immediate context of our passage. Uh, a good way to remember the 28 events in the book of Acts or to remember the statement, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. It's kind of a memory aid, and we're going to look at the first word there. Jesus, in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, the, the main thing that's affirmed is the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. So let's use that to remind us that chapter 1 of Acts talks about Jesus ascending to heaven. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in chapter 2, and we'll see the establishment of the New Testament church. Major dispensational change. Major uh, paradigm change. Uh, chapter 3 talks about the salvation of a lame beggar at the beautiful gate. 
And Peter and John say, silver and gold have we none, but what we've got we'll give you. So they didn't think being in the ministry made you rich and famous necessarily. You, unleashing a persecution against the church and then sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, we will go into all of that. But we're going to finish up chapter 1 today, although verses 12 through 14 have so much interesting content that I want Eric and everybody else to know. We're going to come back and look, Lord willing, weather permitting, uh, and Hayden, you've got to come back from Pittsburgh for this, okay, if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to look uh, really closely at verses 12 through 14, but we'll look at the larger passage today. But if you look at Acts chapter 1, you've got the prologue. That's important because Luke says, hey, this is the second Bible book I'm writing. The first one, everybody else calls the Gospel of Luke, told you what Jesus began to do and teach through his earthly ministry. Now I'm going to tell you what he did in and through the first generation of the church. So that was the prologue. Then verses 4 through 11 talk about a 40-day period between the literal bodily supernatural resurrection of Jesus, between that and the literal bodily supernatural ascension of Jesus. And then today we're going to look at verses 12 through 26, uh, the 10-day period between the ascension and the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost is described in detail in Acts chapter 2. So if I could use a simple diagram, you know, the, the core message of Christianity is that salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. Nobody is so bad they can't have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And nobody's so good they don't need it. And the heart of the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. The resurrection took place three days after the crucifixion, validates the saving power of the Lord's death. In verses 4 through 11, we saw this 40-day interval between the resurrection and the ascension, right, Pat? 40 days. How do we know it's 40 days? Because Luke tells us that. And then in our passage today, verses 12 through 26, we're looking at the 10-day period, Steve, between the ascension and the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends and starts his New Testament ministry. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's always been the agent of regeneration from the Garden of Eden on, but he begins a new concerted type of ministry at the birthday of the church, and we're going to talk about that in great detail starting in two weeks, Lord willing. Okay? So that's what we've got in chapter 1. Let's talk about and think about this whole passage today synthetically, verses 12 through 26. It breaks down like this. First, we've got prayerful anticipation of what Jesus promised them in 10 days. The Holy Spirit's going to come down and start a whole new thing. We're not going to have Old Testament Israel. We're going to have the New Testament church as God's agent of getting his word out. And then we're going to see 120 believers. They're not the only believers in the world. There are more believers in the world than that. But uh, 120 who are in this particular place in Jerusalem at that particular moment, flipping a coin, as it were. That didn't look spiritual to me. To replace a flawed apostle. Look at verse 12. Then, what's then mean? After immediately after the ascension, right, the Mount of Olives. Then they, the 11 apostles, returned to Jerusalem, and it wasn't very far away. This didn't happen on a Sabbath, but a Sabbath day's journey is what the rabbis decided was as far as you could walk, Stan, on a Saturday and not break the rule. Uh, Old Testament spirituality, correctly understood, was designed by God to be spirituality with training wheels, to lead the world to the cross, but self-appointed spiritual fruit inspectors got involved in the process and defined the law differently than God did. The law was never designed to be a ladder that people could use to climb up to God. It was always designed to be a mirror to show us we desperately need a Savior. Uh, but yeah, they decided, this not directly stated in Scripture, but they had done their calculations extra biblically and decided you could only walk a little over a half a mile on a Sabbath and not break the rules. And he's just telling us how far the ascension was from the city of Jerusalem. Verse 13, we have a list of the apostles. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about the apostles in some detail. I'll remind you of the little memory aid that helps me remember it. 
about a month ago, Amanda asked me to send it to her. So yeah, the last time I went over that, I thought, it's just a little memory thing. It kind of rhymes, Ashley, and it's an easy way to remember the names of the apostles. And uh, it's funny because as I prepared that message, I couldn't remember the memory aid, but I worked all week on it, and it finally came back to me. And I thought, man, that is worth its weight in gold. I can't, can't wait to share it with my friends. And I shared it with you guys, and you look like I just shot your dog. And so apparently you didn't like it, but Amanda did. But we're going to go over that again. And uh, they're all important, and uh, they're unique. And sometimes people don't remember that. Okay? I look at verse 14. These all, all the 11 believing apostles, with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer during this 10-day interval, along with other people, including women. Uh, you're not going to make any points in the first century Greco-Roman culture by emphasizing women are on the, the ground floor of this thing. This was countercultural. This was a mind-blowing thing. You're letting women come to the prayer meetings? What's the deal? Yes, we are. Uh, the, the point that you look at the map of the world and the place, places where Judeo-Christianity has been the strongest is where you've got the weakest incident of this kind of modern slavery, although as our culture implodes, we all know uh, sex trafficking is a major problem in the United States of America, including Oklahoma, so we're not doubting that, but it's funny, the seculars never see that. You know, uh, the uh, Richard Dawkins of the world want to tell you that the root of all evil is religion, but if you look at the way Christianity has blessed the world, and so, you like hospitals? <laughs> You like uh, all kinds of things that were invented by Christians. You know, you like modern science. The ancient Greeks were great philosophical thinkers, but they didn't do experimental science because their gods would lie to them. So when an ancient Greek would pick up a rock with a fish in it, they'd go, you can't fool me, Neptune. I know fishes don't live in rocks. Just throw that away. You know, just trying to kid us, you know. Uh, it's people like Isaac Newton that dropped balls for 20 years to figure out God may have come up with a system for the balls to all fall at the same rate. But how about sheets of paper? They fall slower, don't they? Wind resistance, air resistance gets in the way. You put that sheet of paper in a vacuum, it falls at 9.8 meters per second squared, just like a lead ball does. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Uh, so we've got 120 believers in prayer anticipating what Jesus had promised the guys, the advent, the New Testament advent of the Holy Spirit. As I say, I want to go back and look at those verses in some detail, but let's focus on them today just as what they are, kind of the first part of a two-part larger passage. And now we're going to look at the deliberations for determining the 12th apostle would not have looked very spiritual then or now to anybody who feels like it's their job to decide what's spiritual. Uh, breaks down like this. First, we're going to see Peter as the natural leader. I don't think he's forcing himself, but by the power of his personality and his experience, uh, he kind of gets the ball rolling, and he talks about the need for and the requirements for a 12th apostle. And then we go through uh, vetting two nominees based on the requirements, seeking God's will in prayer, and then, then determining the 12th apostle by what looks like a non-spiritual way, but many of us think was exactly what God wanted them to do. Look at verse 15. At this time, during this 10-day interval when they're praying in the upper room in Jerusalem, Peter stood up in the midst of his fellow believers, men and women, a gathering of about 120. Not super impressive by worldly standards. Uh, Mega churches have at least 1,000 people, so if you're less than 1,000 in some people's minds, you're not really doing anything. But 80%, actually it's 75% of all American churches have 75 people or less associated with them. You know that, Joe? So we're in the top 25%, just barely, but we're there, so that's a good thing. Uh, Peter stood up, and he said, Brethren, hermanos, men and women, amigos and amigas, the Scripture, he's all about the Scripture, had to be fulfilled, and in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit foretold through the mouth uh, uh, that's uh, a figure of speech meaning through David. Of course, he said it, but he would have written it in Scripture concerning Judas Iscariot, who actually left us and became a guide to the bad guys to set up the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. For he was counted among us, among us 11 other guys, the apostles, and received his share in this ministry. 
and he totally blew it. I would say he was never really a regenerate believer. I think he saw Jesus as a political Messiah, and he hooked his wagon with that. And when Jesus, during the last trip to Jerusalem, says, it's not about me taking over the government with an army. It's about us changing the world from the inside out and me becoming the king of the world that way. Judas wasn't in for that because he wanted something faster and probably something that looked more spiritual than what Jesus was doing kind of thing, right? Um, Yeah, so we're in this special 10-day period. We've got the believers all together. And it's interesting, most good English translations, and I hope yours does too, when you get to verse 18, puts a parenthesis, mine does, and when you get to the end of verse 19, closes the parenthesis. Do, do most of you see that? You've got that in your Bible, Michelle? You've got a parenthesis in verse 18, and it closes at the end of verse 19. This is Luke, who's writing this book under inspiration, giving the readers, Theophilus is the original reader, who maybe had never been to Jerusalem, uh, some of the information that was common knowledge in the area. I love what he, and look what happens here. Uh, Peter in verse 16 says, hey, Scripture relates to this issue. We've got a problem. Uh, we've got, we had 12 apostles, now we're down to, to 11. And the guy who was the 12th guy defected. He didn't just die, he defected. And God's got a plan for the 12 apostles that goes way beyond right now. we got to have 12, not just for now, but for the end times too. Remember they said, Is at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, there's not going to be a little kingdom. I'm an amillennialist. He didn't say that. He said, he didn't, he didn't question the premise. He said, yeah, it's going to be a kingdom, but not now. And you're never going to know exactly the timing of it. What I want you to do in the meanwhile is be witnesses for me. So it's really important uh, for reasons maybe we'll develop next week a little bit more that we have a 12th apostle at this beginning stage. But what I want to emphasize here is the way, as Luke is giving you this background, we'll deal with that in a minute, but notice Scripture is referred to by Peter as the basis of what they're going to do in verse 16. And then in verse 20, he cites two specific Scriptures, Psalm 69:25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. And notice he says uh, in verse 16, brethren, the scripture, and I'm talking about not John 3.16, okay, which hadn't been written yet, not even Psalm 23, Deborah, but two passages that to us would be pretty obscure, right? But he seems to think all the scripture is inspired and infallible and indispensable. And he said, hey, the scripture, you know, Psalm 69 and, and uh, Psalm 109, you know, not necessarily major passages per se, but the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold through David. Uh, when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, which at one level can't be stressed too much, but a lot of us don't go into it very much because people tend to think it's dry stuff and they want something exciting to go out and do. But the whole premise for a church like this is that God has spoken in Scripture and he didn't stutter. And he's done some amazing things, not just to give us the text of Scripture, but he's done amazing things to preserve it. And it wasn't written in English, not even in King James English, although in 1611 that was a whale of a good translation. But the English language has changed just a little bit in the last 400 plus years. And it's important that we base everything we do on Scripture. And to me, we do a lot of, a lot of cool stuff at TBF uh, for our size. Uh, we're not in the top 25%, but I guess we are in the top 25%, which is barely right. Uh, but everything we do should be based on Scripture. My philosophy of ministry, and I'm not rich or famous, but personally, I'm not going to do anything in my Christian life or as your minister that I don't think is worth doing on the other hand, if I do something, especially here, that nobody wants to come to, I'm going to change the time, change the date, add more jokes, take out jokes, put more Greek, put less Greek. I'm going to figure out what connects with the people I'm called to minister to as best I can. But I'm never going to compromise this basic stand, and it's the Word of God that's important, not the Word of Brad. You don't want to hear me give you a sermon. You want me to hear, hopefully, you want to hear me open up Scripture, tell you what it means in context, Let's call that interpretation. And then tell you what that interpretation, that meaning means in your life. Let's call that application. 
You can take that to the spiritual bank. If you can read through the Upper Room Discourse, know what it means and know how it relates to your life, Derek, what's that worth to you? As opposed to saying, man, that was an amazing sermon I heard. Uh, Mom cooks millions of meals when your kids from, what, when, 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 they start, when do they start chewing? 18 months? More, is that right or somewhere? One year's old until they leave the house. I mean, some people leave at 18, sometimes 20, sometimes 30, 35. Uh, whenever they leave, and you may not be able to remember one meal that was especially important to you, but they were all important. They really were. So inspiration is the idea that God, the Holy Spirit, I mean, the third member of the ontological trinity, David, superintended the human authors of Scripture such that they composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted in the words of the original manuscript. He wanted that as timeless Scripture so 2,000 years later you could hear what it means and how it relates to your life. God primarily speaks to us to the Scripture, okay? So uh, that involves dual authorship. Does Peter believe in dual authorship of Scripture? Look at verse 16 again. Behold the Scripture. And I'm not talking about Psalm 23 or Genesis 1. Everybody knows those. I'm talking about Psalm 69, Psalm 109. The Scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit foretold through David. This idea that, uh, the, that Augustine in the 5th century invented the inspiration of Scripture or the Reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin invented the inspiration of Scripture uh, in the 16th century, or that some people say Dallas Theological Seminary invented the doctrine of inspiration. Dr. Chafer started the, started the joint, if I can say that, in the 1930s. Uh, now, it actually goes back to Peter, and more importantly, the Lord Jesus. Go to Matthew 22. I won't develop all the nuances here. We did this a couple of weeks ago, which was pretty neat to see how the Lord uses the fine points of this passage that he cites in the Old Testament to make a very important point. But look at Matthew 22. And let's just see what the Lord is saying about Scripture. This is long before Augustine in the 5th century, before the Reformers, before Dallas Theological Seminary, or Tangled Bible Fellowship, for that matter, of course. Look at uh, Luke 22, verse 41. Now, after the Pharisees have tried to get Jesus to say something they can use against him by giving him all these trick questions, uh, now Jesus asked them a question at the end of the session. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the promised Messiah who's going to take care of the sin problem and eventually fix the world? Whose son is he? And they said, we know that. It's all over the Old Testament. He's a descendant of David. And Jesus said to them, then how does David, in the Spirit, when he wrote a very famous passage, much more famous than Psalm 69 or Psalm 109, talking about Psalm 110, one of the most important, best known to the Old Testament mind scriptures in the whole Tanakh, then how does David, in the Spirit, call the Messiah his boss, his Adonai? Jesus seems to think Psalm 110 was not just David writing, it was the Holy Spirit writing and speaking through David, right? Dual authorship of Scripture. So, uh, you know, we need to understand, that's the whole premise, I think, of the Christian church. The idea, uh, one of these days we'll talk about the uh, extra canonical Gospels, the uh, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, gets a lot of publicity nowadays. But long story short, it wasn't the New Testament church that created the Scripture. It was the Scripture that created the early church. It was the events of the life of Christ that created it, canonized as Scripture in the first century, and that's what created the church. It wasn't the church invented the Scriptures the other way around. right? Now look at verses 18 and 19. This is Luke's parenthesis letting his readers, including us, know what was common knowledge all over Jerusalem at the time. Now this man, Judas, that defected, and in my opinion, was never a believer at all, but a regenerate believer. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. It's more complicated than that, and you know details, but the 30 pieces of silver were used to buy that in his name. And falling headlong, Judas burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, and the field that was bought with his money he got for selling Jesus up the river 
was called the field of blood. Now, this is one of the most important contradictions in the whole Bible that all the skeptics constantly use to prove you can't believe the Bible. Because if you look at Acts 118, what did it just say about how Judas died? What did it say? What translation are you people using? Okay. Yeah. He fell and his body burst over in the middle, right? Is that what it says, right? But if you read, that's, that's, that's Luke writing in Acts. What does Matthew 27 say? It says that he was so uh, overcome with remorse, not metanoeo, which is salvation, repentance, but metamelomai, which is an overreaction emotionally to bad stuff. He hung himself. And Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, will say, you can't believe the Bible. I can't get the details right. Uh, Matthew says Jesus hung himself. Uh, Luke says that uh, he fell off or jumped off a building or a precipice there at the Kidron Valley and killed himself. Uh, let me suggest those are, are different, Sean. They're different, but they're not divergent. They're two aspects of a larger sequence of events. Matthew 27, 5 is telling you how he died. He hung himself. It's suicide. Acts 1 is telling you what happened afterwards. Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree, okay? He goes out and hangs himself, right? Probably what happened is he wasn't a very good knot tire, as possible, or more likely after his dead body was hanging there because that was a reproach based on the Old Testament law, somebody just cut him down, reached over the valley there. And as you know, the city of Jerusalem is on a little mountaintop and the... Uh, I'll do it to my reckoning. He actually posted it backwards, okay. There's Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley. Then you've got the Hinnom Valley of the south. There's a lot of straight drops of 50 feet. You don't have to fall very far to kill yourself or, or to have something bad happen. He kills himself by the, by the uh, hanging, but as his body decomposes, somebody cut him down or the, or the branch broke or the rope broke. And so those are not contradictory, they're very complimentary. This is how he died. This is what happened to his body afterwards. It was a horrific end to the traitor. And they're both very congruent with one another. You just have to look at the bigger picture. But that's one of those common, if people sometimes will say, well, you can't believe the Bible's full of contradictions. If you, in real world, Aubrey, if you ask people, well, what's your favorite contradiction? 95% of them will say, well, I don't, I don't know any of them, but I know it's full of it because my physics professor said so, you know. Uh, if they know of one, this is one of the ones they might mention. You might say, hey, isn't it possible the guy hung himself and later the branch broke or somebody cut him down because that would have been a reproach. They would not have wanted that hanging around on a Sabbath just outside the temple. Somebody would have cut it down. Some self-appointed spiritual fruit inspector probably would have done that for him, you know. So that's what happened there. All right, we got a need and we got a requirement. Notice he says in verse 21, therefore it's necessary that of all the men have accompanied us from the beginning. You know about the 12, right, Kyleen? Do you know about the 70? And Luke 10, we're told right before the last trip to Jerusalem, Jesus calls 70 men to do a preaching tour to get the word out. So we've got larger groups of believers that are in and out of the ministry of Christ, even from the very beginning, than just the 12. And he's saying we've got an open slot in the apostolic band, and they didn't necessarily play music, but if they did, Peter would have been the trumpeter. I'm just telling you, uh, right? They didn't necessarily play music, Emma, but we've got an open slot. We've got to fill it, and we need to have somebody who's qualified, who's, who's not fairly new, but who's been with us since the beginning. It says one of these who qualifies based on those experiences must become a witness, an apostolic witness, as by the power of the Spirit we build the New Testament church. So, verse 23, we go from the need and the requirement for 12th apostle to two fully qualified people being put forward. There are only two qualified people based on those criteria. So they, the men and the women, that group of 120 in Jerusalem, put forward two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, that means son of the Sabbath. And that uh, would have been his... Joseph would have been his Hebrew name, Barsabbas would have been his Aramaic name, and Joseph would have been his Latin name, which means just or righteous, and Matthias. And so, so we've got two people qualified. Now verse 24, look at this. This is important. And they prayed. So we've got two people that qualify. Uh, 
And they pray to God. And in fact, they pray to the Lord Jesus. Now just go back in verse 21 for context. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us from the beginning, that have accompanied us all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, verse 21, see that, Amanda? Verse 24, and they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who physically chose the 12 apostles at the get-go in Luke 6? Jesus, who are they asking to pick the 12th apostle now? The Lord Jesus. Is it acceptable to pray to Jesus? Of course it is. We pray to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you when you analyze New Testament prayer, Sharon, that 98% of the time, New Testament prayer is directed to God the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. But the book ends with a prayer to Jesus, even so come Lord Jesus. And just before the church starts, they pray to the Lord Jesus to show his will. They're not saying we're going to vote for this thing. We want you to show us who you have in mind. Uh, it's important to, to note here, they're wanting a 12th apostle, not just because one of the apostles had died, but because he had defected. And I'm telling you that for sure, because in Acts 12, when the first apostle is martyred, James, brother of John, there was no need in the church, in the church's mind, to replace him. Okay? They're going to die off. But Judas never really was a legit apostle. And you need 12 apostles to do something Jesus promises to do, which we'll actually read about as we do the Lord's Supper in a minute, uh, in the end times. So it's important that this 12th guy be replaced. We need to have 12 apostles for long. What God's doing now in your 80 years is just getting started. The best is way, the, is way yet to come. And, and he's not just thinking about that generation. He's talking, thinking about the whole plan. And it's pretty neat when you realize that's the way God works because that will help you deal with your current crises. And as Pam once told me, every believer she knows is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about going into a crisis, right? So we've got to pick the 12th one. This isn't a church election. There's a lot of cartoons about this. And this is why Al Gore invented the Internet, by the way, so preachers could find crazy cartoons about biblical events that didn't happen. Okay, Henry, watch this. Matthias replaces Judas, and it's like, you know, sample ballot, vote. This is the first church election. There's no election here. They're not voting for anything here. Okay, now here's another one I found. And back then in the first century, this was high-tech, you know, stuff to use rock, uh, paper, and scissors, which is a lot of fun to do that. That's not what happened here. They've decided that uh, based on Scripture, they need a 12th apostle. They've decided it makes common sense to have somebody who's qualified. That's always helpful in church circles, right? <laughs> Nowadays, you don't need ordination. You don't need training. You don't need calling. Just, you've got a garage? Start your own church. You know, it's all, it's all great. You know? If I ever start my own church, it's going to be the bowling church. We're going to meet at the bowling alley. We're going to bowl. We'll negotiate really good rules. You know, we'll be able to get three games for $5. That'd be good. You have to rent shoes, though. because Renting shoes, is that the most disgusting thing ever? I mean, if, if we had the Church of the Bowlers, we'd have, no, you'd have to buy your own shoes. Okay? And maybe I could sell them to people, and I could make money that way. It'd be, you know, you've got to think of all the angles in the religion business, right? So they prayed to the Lord Jesus and said, you know who the 12th guy should be. Both these guys are very, very good, fully qualified. Humanly speaking, you really can't tell them apart, except the one guy had the longer beard, right? Uh, to, to occupy this unique apostolic ministry. So, boom, this isn't an election. This is them seeking Jesus' will in prayer and then doing something that doesn't look very impressive at all, Tommy. They drew lots. And when we think of draw, draw lots, it's like drawing the short straw. That's the kind of way we do it now. But actually, they would have like two stones, a darker one and a lighter one. They'd put it in some small clay container and they shake it out and they say hey the black one stands for matthias and the white one stands for joseph bar sabbas or uh whatever justice and they shake it and just at random the black one comes out and say oh you're the guy did that look very spiritual to you doesn't look real spiritual but i'm going to argue even though some commentators will say they jumped the gun holy spirit hadn't come yet which isn't right. According to John, Jesus on the night of the resurrection says, you guys, I'm going to give you the temporary filling of the Holy Spirit for you apostles until it, everybody gets it. 
uh, in Acts 2. We'll talk about that next week. But, yeah, there are some people who say, hey, they jumped the gun here. You may have been taught that. You may believe that. That's a perfectly legitimate uh, position. We love you so much. We love you even if you're wrong about stuff like that. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek because, you know, that's one argument. People will say, well, golly, they had to draw straws, and this is just a couple of days before the Holy Spirit came and his New Testament sense, so maybe they should have waited. Plus, another guy becomes pretty prominent in the early church and writes, I don't know, 13 New Testament books. 13 out of 27 is not bad. If you were 13 for 27 in baseball as a, as a hitter, would that be pretty good? you want that guy playing for you, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, so Paul shows up. But we're going to talk about Paul, very much an apostle, but kind of a special, unique kind of apostle. But anyway, I, I get the arguments that this isn't right. But I look at this, and they go from Scripture to the need. They come up with clearly biblical, legit criteria. They pray that the Lord will tell them which one it's going to be. And then they flip a coin, which still kind of sounds weird. (laughs) But I think they did the right thing, and the lot fell to Matthias. Uh, The Old Testament uh, teaches, I think, a gnomic principle, that when you've got to make certain types of non-moral decisions, you don't wake up and say, well, you know what, Uh, I'm hungry, and I'm out of money this month, so should I take this gun and rob the convenience store, or should I not? Lord, we're going to flip a coin. Heads I will, and tails I won't. When it comes to certain, there's no flipping coins and stuff like that, but when it comes to certain non-moral decisions, where after looking at all the pros and cons, you can't really tell which one to go with, and you need to be totally impartial. Like, does April go first, or does summer go first? For whatever, okay? Chris is going to take them out uh, on a date on Saturday afternoons. Who's going to go first? Typically, you go seniority by age. That's what I would do, okay? But if you decide, nah, uh, we don't want to do that, uh, if you flip a coin, guess what? Flip a, flip a coin, nobody can say, well, you love he likes me better than the other one, right? How do they decide who's going to kick off at the Super Bowl? Does the referee just say, I don't care who wins, I'm just going to go, uh, you. Yeah, you can't do it that way. You got to flip a coin, right? Draw straws, something. Uh, the scripture in the Old Testament said there are certain situations where you're making non-moral decisions where you have two equally legitimate options. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw, I wouldn't flip a coin as to should I go to OU or OSU. There's no reason to flip a coin there. Just go to OSU. I mean, that's it. No, I, I mean, if I want to be uh, whatever I want to be, let's say I want to be a uh, taxidermist. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, work on taxes, you know, your, no, whatever they do. Uh, meteorologist, you know, work on meters. Uh, you know, I would say, okay, I want to be X. Let me look at Cameron. Let me look at Cameron. OU, OSU. Which one has the best school for what I want to do? Then you look at affordability factors and different things, you know, and you make the wisest possible decision. But there are times when you have non-moral decisions and you've got two qualified applicants here and they're not exactly the same, but the guys and the gals there can't see any definitive difference between Matthias or Joseph, and so they flip a coin. And guess what? Is God sovereign over the way the coins come up? Yeah, he is. You can misuse that, but if you're using it with the right intention in the right set of circumstances, for sure, guess what? Joseph couldn't say, well, Peter always liked Matthias better than me. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how much Peter likes him. He flips a coin, and, and or in this case, he shakes the clay jar, and out comes the black stone, and that's Matthias. Uh, you have statements like this. The lot is cast in the lap where you'd kind of put the, you know, you had your loose flowing thing, and you put your two coins there and just shake it till one of the stones came out or the coin came out. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord because he's sovereign over everything. Here's the... April can't say summer got your preference. The lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty because there's obviously uh, no subjective, I like you better than her, and that's the reason I picked you instead of her. We just flip a coin and that's where it is. So I think this is a great example of, even though it's debated, of, of true spirituality isn't necessarily really impressive. 
it doesn't necessarily look spiritual. I don't think this little lady putting her two coins in the treasury looked real impressive to anybody except one person. Remember who was really blown out of the water by that little lady? The only one who counts, okay? So I think that's important to note. And again, some people are going to say, now they jumped the gun. I'll deal with that in some detail next week. But for sure, this didn't look very spiritual to anybody, but I think it's exactly what they were supposed to do. Let's take this to heart. True spirituality is not always impressive to the human eyeball. In fact, I say most of the time it's, it's not. To the undiscerning spiritual uh, human eyeball, most of the stuff that's really spirit-directed isn't very impressive to people. Uh, on the flip side, and Jesus dealt with this. Would you say, do you think the Pharisees thought Jesus was, was real spiritual? They, they weren't impressed at all by his level of spirituality. Would you say maybe they missed it? I think so. Yeah, probably. I'll end with a true story. I'm not making this up. Uh, you know, we started going to Puebla in 1991, and for the first five years, we went under the umbrella of Global Missions Fellowship. And it was like the fourth or fifth year during that first five-year period, uh, one of the spouses of a GMF staff member came along with us on the trip. This was the year after I had the uh, privilege of leading uh, Blanca, this chain-smoking University of Puebla uh, professor to the Lord. So I, I knew God was working down here. But uh, one of the, uh, the, the husband of one of the GMF staff members came along and apparently he had, was independently wealthy, and he went on like six or seven of these trips every year. So he'd been all over the world. And he came to our Sunday church service at Iglesia Bautista Jerusalem. And uh, that afternoon, he and me and another people, a couple other people are sitting around eating lunch or something. And this guy, this spouse and staff member, was going on and on and on about how impressive the church services were in Cuba. He'd been to Cuba with GMF. They were kind of under the radar doing that back then. And he talked about how unimpressive and puny what Tomas and the hermanos at Iglesia Bautista Jerusalén had done and expressed just a few hours before in church service. And I got to tell you, I was very offended by that. Uh, who does this cat think he is? That ain't your call, buddy. Number one, I didn't tell him about Blanca because it would sound like uh, something I did, which I was down there for that one week and saw him come to faith. But um, I, I know the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears Tomas and Carmen put into that ministry. And I mean, all they did that morning, and we couldn't understand a lot of it because we don't speak Spanish fluently, was read the Scripture sing songs of praise, pray together, fellowship together, and proclaim the gospel. That's all they did. Nothing very impressive. It wasn't a big crowd. There were probably 24 people there. That's twice, the, 12 times 2. That must be significant, right? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, but let me just say, pun away all the illegitimate, market-driven concepts of true spirituality and let's just get real. And this morning, we're going to go directly to the Lord's Supper after a short break. And that's the heart, I think, and the most significant aspect of New Testament uh, worship. But I think uh, true spirituality is just believers like Harmony more, loving the Lord, abiding in Christ, loving your family, waking up Monday morning, waking David up so he gets the PT on time, uh, cooking breakfast, getting all those kids cleaned up and dressed and getting school going and all this stuff. And to the outside eye, it doesn't look like some big, fancy ritual at the Vatican, which obviously must be spiritual because it's big and a lot of people are there and a lot of uh, people in robes wa walking around. Let me just suggest to you that just, you know, believers loving the Lord, loving each other, being dedicated in a commitment to the Lord and each other, that's where it's found, and sometimes you might have to flip a coin to decide which Bible Bowl team goes first. Nothing wrong with that, okay? But it all starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, none, no, none less than Martin Luther said, John 3, 16, is the gospel in a verse. God, the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of sinners, including you and me, so much that he gave his son 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the active agent of salvation, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So this morning we're about to go into the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Uh, we've been talking about the dynamics of true spirituality, which aren't necessarily very impressive to anybody, measuring it with the human eyeball. And uh, I guess uh, coming to uh, Christ in saving faith isn't very impressive to people because it's not about what you can do for Him, it's about what He's done for you. But if you've never trusted Christ from the depth of your heart, today could be the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I can't fix it, you can. I want you to. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm not a theologian, but I know that. I believe that. I receive you as my Savior. What does Scripture say? But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on His name. Father, help us uh, to realize true spirituality is not necessarily about us singing songs or preaching sermons, although we can do that while we're being spiritual. But it's really about us just zeroing in on the person and work of Jesus Christ as believers in Him, abiding in Him, and then just living wisely and righteously and making simple and regular routine faithful decisions, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but even we're on business trips, even on prom night. So help us to see that and realize that that's one reason there's a judgment seat of Christ. So you can reward and commend all the great stuff great people like Harmony Moore does as an extension of her faith in Jesus Christ. All the great stuff that Steve Skinner does as an extension of his spiritual life that nobody sees that don't necessarily involve rituals or even church meetings, but far transcend that. And Father, prepare our hearts now as we look forward to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for each one who's here. We pray a blessing of your word on all of us as we move this from our heads to our hearts to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.